Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Welcome to the new year. While we are recording in late November, we aim to drop this episode at the start of our new quarter in 2023. And so I hope all our listeners had a good winter break spent with loved ones and ideally also some good food. Today, I am talking to Mukdo Mim Mazab, postdoctoral scholar at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. He is a development economist concentrating on political economy, the environment, and public health. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Virginia in 2021. At Stanford, he's working at the Luby Lab on improving brick kilns and lead acid batteries operations in South Asia to reduce environmental pollution and facilitate better public health. After this long introduction, Mukdo, welcome to the SASPOD. How are you? Hi, Lalita. Thank you so much. I'm doing well and Thank you so much for inviting me and for the nice introduction. Looking forward to this podcast. Well, so are we. Um, tell us a little bit, for starters, about your trajectory, both between um, geographical locations, Bangladesh and the United States, but also between um, this somewhat curious mix uh, in my book of economics and uh, public health. Sure. So uh, as a Bangladeshi, I started my U.S. academic journey with my master's degree in Williams College. <laughs> I was very fortunate to have the U.S. Fulbright Scholarship. And after that master's, I went on and did my Ph.D. in economics at the University of Virginia. And as you have said, from last year, I have been working at Stanford University on environment and public health in developing countries. Prior to coming to US, I had the opportunity to work in Bangladesh as well. So my journey as an economist started in, in Bangladesh only as an undergrad student. Then I worked in the public research organizations concentrating on economic and public policy. And I always had this, uh, I mean, your question about why economics and mixed with public health. I was driven by the driven by the power of economics that actually we can make some contribution to the economy and to the public policy discourse. And it's quite exciting if you see that what uh, an economist could do in developing countries for the betterment of the people. So can you say more about that? Because I... Um... I'm going to get cancelled over this, but I mean, when I think about <laughs> well, by economists, I don't think of economists as as the I don't think of economics as the best stream for the especially when it comes to public health, the betterment of people. So, can you say more about that intersection and not just about the intersection, but how you got into that? What was the moment where you realized I need to do this in order to achieve that? 
That's a great question, Lalita. And I'm I'm sure so I'll I'll give you a or share a little joke. Like I think Please. it's not, not uncommon. So whenever I introduce myself as economist in a friend circle or something like that, that immediate question comes, okay, Mugdo, tell us which stock we should buy. <laughs> So, so economist, and now then it, it, it was for cryptocurrency nowadays. If I am an economist, I should know about the crypto, which crypto to buy. I don't know anything about stock. I don't know anything about crypto. So that's the beauty of economics, I think, because we have so many branches. And as a development economist, uh, I like to think about development of, of, of low and uh, low and middle income countries. Uh, so that's the area that I'm trying to do my research on. Now, coming back to your question about public health, how economics could help. So public health, uh, I mean, there are there are trajectories where epidemiologists and, you know, even medical doctors, they are working on different public health issues. But as an economist, there is enormous you could do. I'll give you some example. Mm -hmm. um, recently, so the work that we are trying to do. So we, as an economist, suggest some kind of environmental policy, but we also have to think about why people should adopt any policy. Or let's say we, we talk about randomized control trial a lot, intervention. You design a policy that is better for the environment, better for public health, but you also have to understand the human behavior. And as a developing economist, we also try to understand why a policy should be taken by some people and why some people should take that policy as well. Is it better for them? Um, is it better for the economy? So in those contexts, I think uh, economists play an important role for any public health design. So some of that seems to be really much more about communication, like how do you frame um, how do you frame the intervention or the behavior that you're looking for? Like on the whole, um, I don't know. It feels like human beings are not really going to change their behavior unless there's something in it for them. I don't know if that's too um, kind of negative, but um, yeah. Anyway, can you say more about that? What, 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 how do you communicate why human beings should be, should modify their behavior to create a better environment, for instance? Excellent question, Lalita. Again, uh, let me give you another uh, very <laughs> A uh, nice example that uh, my mentor over here, one of my mentors, uh, Steve Luby, used to give. So in Bangladesh, they were conducting a research and uh, they want to motivate people not to drink uh, some tap waters because they uh, we, we found out by research that tap water was having uh, a serious kind of bacteria and other issues. So there were many interventions and the intervention went that far that they showed in the in the in the water tap water fecal matters lying around what do you think that people would do after that they thought okay after this people definitely would not drink a lot of water right. guess what zero percent change of behavior that did not motivate people to change their behavior from uh, not drinking the tap water so it's very exciting you know behavioral <laughs> economics so then you think about okay so this is not the proper incentive actually you should give then you think about other incentive then then economists and public health specialists, they thought about it and came up with something more effective. So this is the beauty, I think. So there is there is not a single intervention that you can you know prescribe, okay, this will work. Understanding the the whole process, understanding how incentive actually going to improve people's life and people will adopt that. That's very exciting and it varies project to project. And as an economist, we try to do that.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I get that. That's such a great, a great example. Not what one would expect. Um, let's talk then about brick kilns. Um, to me, so a brick kiln sounds uh, very sustainable and, and not problematic, like, for instance, burning coal. Um, and then you're also working on lead acid batteries. And uh, for uh, listeners, uh, uh, I did a podcast with Jenna Forsyth uh, on lead acid batteries uh, probably about a year ago. I will link to that in the show notes. Um, and that was very interesting because you think that, you know, a, a, a battery operated vehicles are, you know, sustainable and great for the environment and we should all be going for that. And then it turns out in the recycling, actually, they become extremely um, polluting. So I imagine something similar with brick kilns. Can you can you say more? Absolutely. So brick kilns for our uh, listeners and not uh, I would say viewers, but listeners. <laughs> so so uh, many of them uh, will maybe I, I'll explain a bit. So bricks, these bricks that we are talking about is predominantly used in many developing country, countries, especially in South Asia. So basically these are clay fired bricks. So you use clay, you fire it with coal and, and you come up with uh, these bricks, which are heavily used in uh, infrastructure and other building materials. So as you rightly pointed out, we we as human beings know the negative effect of coal burning. Now, what shall we do? One thing is that, okay, we completely stop this industry. We said that, no, coal burning is illegal. Then the repercussion that that will have on economy, millions of people who are working, that is not a sustainable solution. So now from Woods Institute as a postdoc at Stanford Woods Institute, we think about sustainable solution. So we came up with this these changes that these uh, brick kiln owners and the workers can do. If they change their behavior in terms of their production of bricks, we have seen in our pilot findings that substantial amount of pollution is reducing. So rather than completely shutting it down, we're coming up with some sustainable uh, solution that you know these brick kiln owners were motivated by profit, unfortunately, but they will have their profit, but as, at the same time, they will also reduce the pollution substantially. So that's exactly what you said about lead acid batteries. Like lead acid battery, we know right now we're thinking about, oh, well, this three, uh, three wheelers, it's good for environment. But then we have to also think about how we are recycling all this lead acid battery will have an impact on the environment. Similarly, in brick kiln industry, we know that there will be production. We know with policy, we can carve down some of the uh, production, but we also have to come up with some effective technological advancement that will re reduce the pollution. And so what is the what is the incentive then in terms of behavior? Because you say the brick kiln owners are motivated by profit. So, so what how are you incentivizing them to be more environmental? Because it's they don't care. I mean, some of them might do, but on the whole, especially if they're not people but corporations, then profit is what matters. And so the fact that it's not sustainable is ultimately like, well, so what? I mean, that's that's how I see how capitalism operates. And so how do you have these conversations then? You're exactly right. A basic model of capitalism is in play over here, but there is also some development factor that is different from the pure capitalism, I'll tell you. So first of all, you're right. These brick-in owners motivated by their profit. 
you or me as an outsider, as a researcher, we go to them and say, okay, do this, do that, change some of your uh, production method, you know, it will reduce uh, environmental pollution. They'll just tell us, I'm sorry, if you can't guarantee me that I will not lose profit, then I'm okay. Then I'm okay to think about the environment. But if you, if I think that I'm losing my profit, sorry, I can't do that. All right. So that's why we have to make sure with our experience, people who have worked in the brickling industry for development, that our technology actually going to reduce the amount of coal they are using to burn burn bricks. So their cost is reducing a lot. Our technological intervention is uh, helping them to produce greater quality bricks. So they're getting better price in the market. So that's the profit motivation they will have. Secondly, this brick production is heavily done by workers. Now, as a researcher, we also understand the value that these workers have to adapt to these changes. But then you can ask me why workers will do that. So in our research, what we are trying to see, one of what we say intervention arm, we are encouraging the brick kiln owners to provide incentive, extra bonus for the workers, extra food, better accommodation, better shading areas, better medical facilities. As a researcher, we are trying to understand if you provide those kind of incentive to workers, actually whether it helps the whole process or not. Got it. Um, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by the communication piece uh, of of your work. So thank you for uh, talking me through that. I think um, for many listeners, um, and this might be this might be another one that you get at parties after you've done explaining that you don't know about cryptocurrencies. Um, but uh, development, finance, and and Bangladesh come together in the person of Mohammed Yunus and the concept of microfinance. And and I remember being really quite bowled over by the concept when I first learned about it. I imagine in the early 90s when I was at SOAS, um, it just seemed so amazing and visionary and such a simple solution to so many bad things. And uh, clearly the practice of microfinance 30 years on, and and especially the way it puts the onus on women to keep it all ticking over has been uh, shown to be uh, problematic and has been critiqued uh, extensively, but I also feel it's not all bad. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to ask you that. Um, can you can you say more about the way that that communication about microfinance has changed, and what is a more nuanced way that sc- scholars look at it now in the early where are we 2020s? That's a great question. And yes, as a Bangladeshi, you know, uh, like all the other Bangladeshi, we have been very proud on Dr. Mohammad Yunus, you correctly said, won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for his work on microfinances. But, you know, there has been there has been serious research done, done on microfinance and microcredits and the effectiveness, effectiveness of that. Unfortunately, to say that if someone asks me whether microcredit or microfinance is uh, is a panacea for poverty reduction, the answer is no. We have seen that only micro microfinance or microcredit uh, providing microcredit will not help reducing poverty. However, if you add few more other other kind of what we say controls or few more other intervention with it, it has been helpful. Microfinance, the recent research or the research in the last two decades uh, has shown that microfinance actually is helping 
to to increase the entrepreneurship skill of women so you that will increase the entrepreneurship skill on women but then there are other factors whether that will have actual an impact on increasing the salary or the or the profit or the income they they are doing from the business so itself what my my conclusion from the research or that i understood is it's not like you know it will not help people coming out of poverty but it will give people tools that they can use to come out of poverty number 1 number 2 and talking about uh, gramin bank as you have said it has uh, has been uh, working in many other countries many other developing countries started from bangladesh there are other ngos like brack i mean i am just holding the uh, book right now this is hope over fate uh, by scott macmillan and it was actually there was a seminar in stanford it's about the life of sir fazle hasan abed who is another visionary who work with the poor people and now brack has so many uh, branches all over the country they so brack has done very well in terms of you know helping poor com- coming out of poverty but they did not only wait for microcredit or microfinance they have a holistic view about po- poverty reduction which has been very helpful to many people around the world so can you what what does brack stand for so brac uh, is uh, it started the bangladesh uh, rehabilitation uh, so it was uh, after 1971 when there uh, there was a serious natural disaster in bangladesh mm-hmm. sir fazle hasan abed and a few of his friends they started this organization then they they started working with the poorer people in the rural communities and helping them you know re- for rehabilitation then it then it went for education medical providing business solution providing skills to develop uh, to do some work so that's that's the uh, that's the uh, brac is the biggest ngo in the world right now and it heavily involves people from the rural community and and that's why i think it's one of the reasons for its success got it got it okay thank you for clarifying that um and then so i'm curious to what extent your work then um is there your work builds on the microfinance model what what are some of the techniques of communication and um economic incentivizing that that you may have learned from microfinance and that you can now bring into your work with for instance the brick kilns or the lead acid batteries recycling that's a great point so not directly from microfinance but um i am one of my one of the work that i'm trying to do right now with a micro microcredit uh, organization in bangladesh but we are more interested to understand you know how how this technology rollover now people are having mobile phones in their hand in the last two decades that have increased a lot whether it has helped the loan application whether it has helped like more women uh for for uh, being entrepreneur from that perspective the other perspective about incentive it's it's important to understand that wh- why some of the programs has has been successful and why some of the programs was not that successful and failed so understanding that is important so because i work on the context of bangladesh so once you understand the context of bangladesh or the or the country that you're working working uh in particular so that helps a lot now de- uh, like when we devise any intervention we have some 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 example what what we can use to understand why some program failed so that you know we learn from our experience and design an intervention in a way that the take up should be higher and there is a higher chance of success of those intervention 
So we're just out when we're recording uh, in late November. We're just out of COP27 and uh, a loss and damage uh, deal of sorts was achieved. I haven't read up on the details of it yet because it's all very recent. Uh, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, um, uh, audience people, um, we are having, uh, we at Center for South Asia are having a, a, a virtual panel on uh, loss and reparations or um, loss and damage as it relates to the Pakistan floods uh, in February 2023. Uh, so you can go to our website and look uh, at that. Uh, but in terms of this podcast, um, Mugdo, is it fair to ask uh, poor people in developing nations to do this level of work? I understand that it's fair to ask them just to have cleaner air in their immediate community. I get that. I mean, the benefit is direct. If you do this, then your child will not develop asthma. That seems that seems a reasonable request. But in terms of the bigger burden, it, it's not right, is it? That's a, such a great question. And I mean, I completely agree with you. Just asking poorer people, you know, just to uh, be so environmental friendly, quote unquote, especially a country like Bangladesh, one of the most vulnerable countries in the world due to climate change. Mm -hmm. And if you ask this climate change done by only Bangladeshis, I'm sorry, the answer is no. The Western countries, when they have developed, they have industrialized heavily. And unfortunately, there has been impact in, in low income countries like Bangladesh yeah. a lot. So now, now I unfortunately with uh, COP twenty seven and other other climate change meetings, we haven't reached to a conclusion when we can see the exact benefits of countries like uh, Bangladesh. There have been many talks, there have been many programs, but it's still, this is a, I think an open area of research. How we can devise some policies where actually these people, I mean. You see the threat, right? right? There is a, the threat of sea level rise in Bangladesh in uh, coming 50 years where 30 to 40% of the land would be inundated if that happens. Now, tell me about what, what those people will do. Right. And and unfortunately, like these are the these are the worst suffer, sufferers in the world where they don't have any kind of impact to change immediately. So what I think is that like developed countries should come uh, and work with the developing countries. There has been, you know, the system of um, carbon footprint buying. Again, I think that's another area of research we have to develop a system because that hasn't been successful in the last 10, 15 years. We have to think about how like you, you can uh, move more resources to climate change vulnerable countries. We also have to understand how, you know, the most interesting fact for me, people are actually adapting. There has been like many local innovation. There has been a climate, climate change resilient agricultural production in Bangladesh. People are, people are doing that by themselves. So, so I, you want, uh, you know, this developed country to invest on those innovation, invest on this local solutions so that those are more sustainable and countries like Bangladesh all over the world, they can let, develop their own method to right. fight this dangerous thing right. called climate change. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad that your work is uh, finding ways of doing that. We had um, Sharika Thiranagama on the podcast a few months ago talking about the economic crisis in Sri Lanka. And I'm I'm wondering um, now talking to you again as an uh, economist, um, how is Bangladesh affected by such instability in a neighboring country, and could it happen there too? So, so this is 
Very fascinating. And it's uh, ultimately shocking what happened to Sri Lanka. You know, Sri Lanka, being a, because as a, I'm also a South Asian working on South Asian countries, Sri Lanka has all always stood out, you know, ha having the highest uh, rate of literacy, uh, being a country which is more open. So you see Sri Lanka as a very good example that has been uh, 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 as a country in South Asia. Now, uh, the failure for Sri Lanka or, or the collapse that recently happened, there are many attributes, like there has been corruption issue, issues, there has been preferential treatment of a few people, there has been too much debt dependence on China, and ultimately there was, these are all motivated by bad governance. Mm. And then we saw what happened in Sri Lanka. Now, if you ask me if Bangladesh will become another Sri Lanka soon, I can say the answer is no. In, in in coming future, Bangladesh at least don't have that uh, risk. But if that is completely out of the book, again, the answer is no. Because right now, some of the indicators like, you know, as we are seeing dollar is getting very stronger in Bangladesh. So people who are exporting, they are not getting proper incentive. The export has decreased. Bangladesh is highly dependent on remittances. These hardworking people working elsewhere in the world sending remittances back. Remittances uh, 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 are also has been slowing down. So there has been some pressure. The the what we call the uh, the dollar in our reserve bank that has been also declined a bit. So there are indicators, but Bangladesh has become quite self sustainable in many other things. And though there is political issues that we hope that uh, would be resolved soon, but they are doing quite well right now, but we have to be careful. What is next for you, Mukdil? How long are you at Stanford? And then what, what are some of the things that you're excited about possibly working on in the future? Uh, thank you, Lalita. So I, I hopefully I'm here uh, till 2000. 24. So I'd say a couple more years at uh -huh. Stanford because I'm very excited about the research that I'm a part of in Stanford. I'm working with some wonderful people. I'm enjoying the research in South Asia. I feel like I'm uh, trying to do something for my country and my region. So that's very fulfilling, to be honest. And once, once my part uh, in Stanford would be done, then I'll see. I probably will continue this work, but in some, some other university, maybe maybe as an academician in a, in a more teaching and research context rather than only research. There are international organizations, I believe, where I can contribute. So I, I'll take it as it comes, but I'm enjoying Stanford. I'm here with my family, beautiful California, beautiful people. And uh, again, I mean, uh, grateful for the opportunity to work for my country in a great research setting. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's been really good talking to you and finding out more about your work and about um, the work you do at Stanford on Bangladesh. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Lalita, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> but we'll see it in next year. So happy New Year as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. And as Thank always, you. thanks to Som Shiva for creating the intro and outro music and Simrat Mataru for post-production.
Thank you for listening to the SASPod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.